Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. Uh, I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative, and this is our 26th episode of the podcast, which feels like we've really accomplished something with a body of work. However, we have been very remiss. We've talked about everything from rates to tree trimming to international climate policy, and we haven't talked about what is probably the most visible part of what we do building, maintaining, and operating 3,000 miles of distribution poles, lines, and equipment. So joining Tony and I today to talk about that is our engineer, Frank Sipker. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Frank uh, has his Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering. Am I Correct. saying that right? Okay. Yes. From Michigan Tech University. After graduating from Michigan Tech, he spent five years planning, analyzing, and designing uh, transmission and distribution systems with URS Corporation, and he's been here at Cherryland for t- since 2003, so 13 years now. In addition to that, he's a Glen Arbor native, a big brother through Big Brothers Big Sisters, vice chair of the Glen Arbor Fire and Rescue Association, father to two of the cutest kids in the world, and a super swell guy. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to be here. So to start us off, uh, Frank, can you just tell us about kind of what our co-op distribution system looked like when you came here in 2003? What did we start with? So Cherryland has always had a robust system, and it's always been re, uh, well well known through the state for having a good, reliable, and a maintained system. One of the biggest things that probably changed uh, 13 years ago after I arrived here was our intent to do a little bit more planning and looking a little farther ahead with our distribution system. We've always been in the mode of maintaining and operating it very well to a very high standard, but now we're looking a little farther forward and making sure our upgrades are are fitting the long-term vision for the cooperative and, and looking down the road doing what our predecessors did back in the 30s when they built the system that got us to where we are today. So what do you see when you look forward? Talk, talk about what some of those changes are. So I think the biggest things looking forward are the accessibility and the maintainability of the system. That's one of the biggest things that we changed. When the system was built back in the 30s, it was built via path of least resistance, shortest point from shortest line from point A to point B. Um, roads and vehicles and bucket trucks and digger derricks weren't part of the normal cooperative workforce back then. Uh, so it was, you know, it was mostly manual labor. So the terrain and the location of the poles didn't really have any impact on how we operated them. But today, with technology and the safety improvements we've had with the the, the tools that we have available. We can be so much more efficient and so much safer and so much more effective when we can get to the poles quickly and easily with the trucks and the equipment that we used to work on them today. So the biggest change then is that we're continually moving poles and lines out to the accessible areas near road right-of-ways. And that's what it means to us. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to jump in and say. When our members see a line going cross-country, that's probably an older line that we haven't moved out to the road right away yet or, or near the road. So a good judge of our system. And what we're doing is where is that line located? Why is it in the middle of the field and why is it at the road? So you're saying that the line that goes through my backyard is probably not one of our, our newer um, relocated lines? Precisely. When we put that line in your backyard, there was probably nobody else there. <laughs> and we've built around a lot of these cross-country sections right. to the point where we have rows of houses with lines in their backyard. And we're, with Frank's guidance, we've been systematically going through that. Yeah. And that's one of the big changes. You know, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, we had already started rebuilding a lot of our plant. You know, we needed additional capacity. Uh, we needed to serve additional homes as, as density increased on the system. 
But at that time, we were simply reconductoring is the, the common term. We would put bigger conductor on the existing poles, uh, which gave us more capacity, the ability to serve more customers, uh, provide better power quality. But we didn't address the issue of the pole line is still in a really inaccessible location. It's harder to maintain for tree trimming. It's harder to restore outages on it. It's harder to maintain the electrical plant, you know, for continued uh, long-term serviceability. How much do we rebuild each year? We uh, rebuild approximately 20 miles a line every year. And that, and a lot of that is 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 actually physically moving the asset. Correct. Okay. Yep. Cool. So one other thing that I that's really interesting to me when I look at like the distribution system going forward is the role that technology and technological changes is playing in the decisions and planning we're making. What kinds of technologies are first? I guess I would ask a two-part question: What kinds of technologies have you seen implemented since you came here in two thousand three? And then once we talk about that, maybe we can look kind of some predictions going forward too. Sure, you know, with a couple of the big changes that have made uh, here in the last 10 years were the implementation of our uh, automated meter reading infrastructure. So we've now got the ability to actually read out to our meters from the office. Uh, we can read voltage information from them. We can read power usage. We can read power usage at peak times as well. So we're actually able to pull back uh, real-time information from those meters when we're having peak system conditions and put those into our engineering model and actually analyze on what actual real live loads were at peak last year or maybe even just yesterday if we're going to do some uh, system reconfiguration today. We can we can pull the meter information from yesterday, put it into our model today, and have an idea of what to expect uh, the system to look like today. The other major change that we've got, uh, we've brought online in the last 10 years would be our SCADA system. And SCADA is supervisory control and data acquisition. Uh, it's kind of a fancy name for uh, a remote control and a remote visibility system to our, our major system uh, electronic devices. Kind of sort of like the smart home trend we have today uh, where people want to be able to see what's going on in their home when they're not there. Uh, we would like to be able to see what's going on across our distribution system without being everywhere. Uh, you know, there's only so many people here at the office. Uh, we've got 16 substations scattered across 3,000 miles of line. We can't be everywhere simultaneously, but with SCADA, we can be sitting at one computer or one iPad potentially, and we can have real-time visualization, status of circuit breakers, voltage at those locations, power flows, uh, information regarding faults that may have occurred on the system. All that information is at our fingertips now and readily available. So all this data available to us, um, when, we when we hear about people talking about smart grids, are they talking about skate? Like, what? I don't even know. What the heck is a smart grid? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Thank you. Uh, and it's uh, everybody has their own interpretation of smart grid, and it typically in today's world ties mostly to the automated metering infrastructure. That's kind of what smart grid has has fallen to in in the recent past. You know, if you don't have information coming back to where your energy it, energy loads are and, and information about your energy loads, it's hard to do much smart upline from there. But that's one of the things that will be growing the definition of smart grid. It's, it's already out there, but the implementation of smart grid will grow in the coming years. That's probably the next technological change we're looking at with more automated controls on the distribution system. So the ability to automatically isolate a faulted piece of the distribution system. So a tree falls on a line, smart grid eventually will be able to tell us which piece of line was affected by that tree fall and be able to open up the line on either side of that conductor and uh, or that tree fall and re-energize the line from both directions, restoring the power to most of the people except those that are in the immediate vicinity of where that actual fault occurred. So that's kind of the next phase of smart grid. 
you know, we've worked really hard to get the, the meter information back. We've worked really hard to get the real-time awareness through the SCADA system. And the next phase will be try, starting to implement, implement some more control systems that will help us restore power faster. So right now, what we basically have is, at least my understanding of it, is we, we're able to identify using the, the smartness already built into our system with our AMI uh, who is out. But the next step is figuring out who can we bring back on whilst even before we go in and repair the piece of line. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the identification of who's out is still a reactive process. You know, our, our AMR system has been in for quite some time, and in the day and age we built it, we built a power line carrier system because it's very effective, it's very reliable for reading meters and for reading meter data. The downside is, is when the power goes out, the line to which the AMR meters communicate with the office is the same line that brought power to them. So we've lost communications. So we don't get any instantaneous notification from our AMI system as to who's out. But what we do get is the ability to reactively address once we know there is an outage, which we can get help from SCADA and which we get help from customers with phone calls or uh, use of their Smart Hub application or their IVR system. Once we have noticed that there's an outage, our system begins reacting to that and it pings out and it starts asking meters near that location of where the initial outage request is, hey, do you have power here? Does your neighbor have power? Do the people up the street have power? And the system's able to automatically build out and then determine the extent of that outage once we have it in the system. Kind of explain what the system does automatically and what the people at the end of the system have to do. Because I think a lot of people think, well, it's, it's automated, we've got nobody in the office, and it just this all just happens by itself. And that's really not the case. Sure, and that's where it comes back to the initial, initial input to the system. We've got to have that call from a customer. We've got to have that um, smart hub uh, outage uh, alert come into the system in order for the system to start reacting. Um, because like I said, when the power line outage occurs, so does that communication path through the meter. So the meter can't call us and tell us it's out. Um, so we're looking for that initial uh, initial uh, event to, uh, to trigger the system to start working. And from there, the system does automatically start checking meters around it, trying to determine the extent of that outage. Um, and then our dispatchers are the ones who are monitoring that system. That's our outage management system. We call it OMS, short for outage management system. We love acronyms in the utility industry. <laughs> um, we should have an acronym for ac acronym creation. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, the dispatchers are the ones who are looking at this uh, 24 hours a day. And you know, during the day, we have two, uh, two scheduling supervisors and administrators in our building here that are monitoring that system and keeping track of it and uh, responding to those outages. Because once the system has the outage, it still doesn't automatically mean that someone's gonna come fix it. So the, the dispatchers are then monitoring that and then they're allocating resources. So they're looking at where outages are, how big they are, um, what, what other events may be contributing to that, weather or, or other external influences, and then they're, they're allocating crews, resources, trucks, uh, linemen, and things of that nature to go out and respond to that and restore the power. So one of the things that, uh, just to take this a little bit different direction, but it's something that I love. <laughs> I think loop feeds are super cool and nobody even knows what they are. And I didn't sure. know before I came here. And in fact, I still can't, I don't really know other than that I know they're super cool because what they do is they allow us to bring people back on more quickly. So can, and, and that's not, and that's kind of a new thing we've built into our system. Can you talk through what they are in that process? Sure, yeah. You know, loop feeds are, are a, a, an excellent tool to have in our toolbox. And what a loop feed is, is that it gives us the, uh, it's, it's the way in which we construct our system so that we have two possible sources in which we can flow energy to the customers from. 
So the customer is basically located between two energy sources. So let's say we're talking, let's call energy sources generators because people recognize those. If we have a generator two miles to the west of us and we have a generator two miles to the east of us and we're right between those and there's a line that goes all the way from the east generator to the west generator, we don't run, you wouldn't run both generators connected to my house at the same time uh, because it causes lots of technical difficulties, right? But what we do is we open that line up. So we'll have two miles of line coming one way with an open point, half the customers are on that two miles of line. And we have two miles of line going to the, the other generator with half of the customers on that, that line. So in a normal situation, if the customers on, say, the east half of that line lose power, a tree falls on the line and takes that line out, the only way to get power back to those customers is to get that east generator back online and get the wire restored all the way back to the end of the line before we can turn it back on. With loop feeds, we can actually just cut the line open either side of where the tree fell, and the people who are east of the tree can be restored from the east generator, and the people who are west of the tree can be restored from the west generator. We can close that circuit in and backfeed from the other direction. So it's a little different than the old radial day where we built star configuration, where everybody fed out from one generator on radial lines, kind of connected like a star with no nothing on the backside. And basically, if anything happened, between you and your generator, you just had to wait until that was fixed. And we had an example recently, I think, I don't know, you can mm -hmm. attest to this, where we had um, Copper Ridge and Great Wolf Lodge, whatever that, that generator is, yeah. um, had a fault, mm -hmm. and it was going to be a, a lengthy repair, and we were able to backfeed it. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's exactly true. Uh, you know, this particular scenario, we had two different sources and one of the underground cables on the primary source that fed that area of Great Wolf Lodge, YMCA, Copper Ridge, you know, kind of a pretty familiar area, West Silver Lake Road. The, the underground cable that came out of, uh, out of the substation or the generator to the, to the west um, failed. Uh, the, the underground cable actually faulted out internally. So we were able to isolate that. We were able to open up that section of cable, open the switch up on either side of that, and then the people who are on the one side were fed from the original source, and the people on the other side were able to be fed from the alternate source. So we were able to use that loop to tie people and backfeed. So we basically put, had everyone back restored with power within less than an hour and a half or so, and mm -hmm. then how long did the actual repair take? Uh, so then we, we, at that point in time, we actually started testing to find the fault in that section of cable, and then we had to excavate up, dig, dig, the, dig the wire up, and, and cut the splice out, and replace the splice with two more splices. That process took probably three or four hours. Um, by the time we had, we had to call in a mist dig and get the mist dig to clear because there was natural gas and telephone and all kinds of other stuff buried in the ground there. Uh, so, you know, we, we had people back on and in, in, in half of them in the first hour and the other half of them in about an hour and a half total. Uh, all of them would have been out for the whole three or four hour duration of trying to repair that fault if we didn't have that loop feed capability. That's awesome. And I think, again, it's just there's all these things that go on behind the scenes that most of us don't even see. And yet at the same time, I assure you to members like the YMCA that were getting ready to open their doors that mm -hmm. morning or Copper Ridge that had surgeries on the schedule, like that's incredibly yeah. impactful mm -hmm. um, investment we've made in our system to have redundancy for where, how they get their power. Correct. And important for people to know that it's easier to do when we're not on the peninsula. It's probably harder to do up the Leelanau Peninsula mm -hmm. than it is below the peninsula right because you know there's the, no, the only way to get two sources you know from from what is existing in the base of the peninsula is to build two parallel lines up and uh it's difficult to do yeah so often you got to think of a loop as coming from a different direction another area 
and as the land mass narrows like it does in the peninsula, we, we lose those opportunities. So we do have areas on radial lines like Northport that we're just unable to do a loop feed to. That's what the price they pay for getting oh. to live up in beautiful Northport. It's difficult to get a loop through the water <laughs> across the bay or across the lake. But but we've done a – Frank and his team has done a great job of getting loop feeds wherever we can for a many years now and and i think as i'm speaking for you frank but i think as we look forward we're continuing to look for ways to build out additional loops within our system where appropriate absolutely that's awesome you talked about uh technologies going forward one of the technologies that interests me is drones tell mm -hmm. me what role you think drones might eventually play well, we've got a lot of interest in drones you know they're they're exciting new technology on the uh from the uh the public perspective viewpoint obviously the the concept of flight is not new in the in the cooperative world. People have been flying distribution lines or transmission lines for years with airplanes. The problem is the the the, the cost risk or the cost benefit um, problem is that it's very expensive to fly big airplanes and helicopters, and then you have multiple staff involved with uh, piloting and riding and 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 so forth. Drones really have some some po some great possible future uses for us when we can get over this non line of sight requirement. Um, today, we're not allowed to fly them places we can't see them. And that really limits our ability to use them on the distribution system because our, our primary use for them is to cover a lot of space in a short period of time. And if we can only fly them as far as we can see them on our distribution line with trees, hills, and the things that we have in our, in our, our uh, northern Michigan climate here, we can't fly them very far. So you spend a lot of time hopping around. But there's a lot of new technologies and a lot of new movement in the, uh, the legality standpoint of getting to the point where we're able to fly these things non-line of sight. And the idea of maybe stationing these things at like substations or maybe at critical points on our distribution system where we could have a drone that is staged there sitting on a battery charger with a predetermined flight plan for it says if we have an outage in this area, the drone can pop up and fly, and he can start flying that line. We know where the lines are. They have GPS. He can start flying the line, and he can report back abnormalities. Uh, that's a really bright future idea for us. If we can have, you know, because we could have 16, 20, 30, 50 of these things out scattered about our system. We can't scatter 50 linemen and have them just sitting there 24 hours a day waiting for something to happen. But with technology, we could. How and far out do you think that technology is? It could be in the next couple of years. Okay. There's a little bit of pilot project going on right now with a few other utilities and a few universities that are, are trying this idea of staging a drone and having it ready to respond. Uh, so that's really where, that's where we see the biggest future benefit for us in the distribution world. If we can get these things staged in strategic locations and have them ready to go and pre-programmed with flight paths, they can go out and fly that. And, you know, our, my, my, my future vision is someday they'll be able to do the video processing and go, it's supposed to look like this, but it doesn't because there's a tree across the line. Be able to report back a, what it sees as an abnormality to reduce the amount of time we have to spend, <coughs> excuse me, watching video footage looking for abnormalities. And that technology isn't all that far off. I, I, probably the next three to five years, I think hopefully we'll see something to that effect. Hopefully sooner we could get them staged and ready to go. But in the future, the video uh, signal processing aspect of that I think would be really exciting. That's so awesome. And I, I would imagine that would be really impactful, like when we have a significant system event, right? Like a, a major storm like we did last August mm. or way back in March of 2012, yeah. where all of a sudden you've got tons of things going on throughout your system. And if you can get a quick snapshot without having to actually send people through somewhat treacherous conditions to find out. Too. Right. Yeah, that, that would be a huge benefit in a major event where we've got widespread 
damage where we need to kind of evaluate and assess quickly to be able to have, say, 50 of these things out there flying around and uh, one or two people back at the office reviewing that data. They can review a lot more data than what we can send them on foot and around to look at and help us allocate resources yeah. quickly and also know how much help we need to get, you know, help yeah. us quicker and establish who's coming online. Seems like we'd be able to take the member calls. The members always call in with a tree on the line, and I heard a bang, I heard a pop, and just send the drone mm -hmm. straight to that area yep. and, and get a quick picture. And yep, the, the members could help too. help in that technology down mm -hmm. the road too. So yep. I'm just wanting to make sure the members are never off the hook. We always need the member information. Yeah, absolutely. And we've we've already said this, but for all those members out there listening, uh, one of the coolest things that we have with all the technology available to us today is Smart Hub and members can report outages they can give us notes all that goes directly into our outage system and then people on your team frank can look right. at it and say oh okay you know joe member saw a tree at this location and that yes. can that's really helpful yeah information. it's hugely information the key that you know the most important thing is that the information is accurately framed so those comments the more information you give us the better um it, oftentimes we'll get a report of someone who saw a tree on the line and they live at xyz address but the tree was two miles down the road from their house <laughs> great information to have it we just need to have it framed that the tree was at the intersection of xyz not at my house because our meters are going to go out and check that customer's house they may have power and we're going to say okay they have power they have a tree on the line it's get, we're going to we're going to react to that differently than if they have power and they report that there's a tree on the line down the road which may actually tie to a different outage that's in our system and if we can link those two pieces of information together uh, makes it a lot more useful to us and, and allows us to react more quickly and more accurately so, um, again, kind of forward-looking, what do you see as the biggest challenges that, that are kind of on your radar for the future? There's a lot of them out there. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges is still system plant aging. You know, as we've talked about, we have 3,000 miles of line. We rebuild about 20 miles of line every year. You do the math on that, we're talking about 150 years of average life we have to get out of the plant. So... Rebuilding the line is not the only thing we do. We have a ton of maintenance programs in place. You know, we're looking at pole replacements. We're looking at uh, aged wire replacements. We look at transformer replacements due to loading, and, and we do maintenance programs to improve things like insulators and, and fuses and, and things of that nature. So it's not that we're blind to these other, these all these these non not the, the miles other than the 20 that we're looking at every year. But that's a, that's a continual... Uh, challenge to us is to make sure that we're getting the right pieces of line rebuilt every year and uh, making sure that we're not missing something that's becoming a problem in the background. So that, that's kind of our, our big challenge from the planning perspective that we're always looking at on the distribution system. Explain the thought process between overhead and underground for our listeners because so many people think, well, just put everything underground and problems yeah. are solved. Uh, underground has a lot of very distinct advantages. It has a lot of significant challenges that come with it, too. You know, the example of the underground outage we had this week uh, uh, at, on the uh, Great Wolf Lodge area in Copper Ridge, that cable was only 13 years old. Um, new cable. Uh, it'd been in, it was, you know, the, the, basically the best quality cable we could get. We had quality contractors working on installing it, and yet we had a failure on it. Um, and the, the, the response time to find and fix that failure, you know, like I said we're talking three or four hours um, to, to get to find that cable and repair it. On an overhead line, we can do that so much quicker, and the cost implications are generally quite a bit lower. Um, so there's, there's those two challenges. You know, underground, you can't see the problems. You have to use 
uh, things like radar and you know uh, radio range finding detection devices to locate the cables to locate the problems on the overhead you can you can drive down the line and look at it and see the problems so that's kind of the the, the challenge from an operation standpoint um, so how do we decide when we put in underground when we put in overhead what some of that thought process so there's there's two keys to that one is the environmental aspects of the physical location you know we're looking at the trees we're looking at the soil conditions and then we're looking at the costs um, and then and the third leg of that are, is the reliability issues um, we generally have less outages on the underground so when we have an area where we can effectively build a looped underground system um, that cuts down on the restoration problems so now it's going to come down to the the site locations um, is there enough overhead risk from trees and things of that nature or squirrels or whatever it may be uh, to justify the significant increase of cost up front so we're going to look at the density how many customers are we talking about uh, and things of that nature to try and weigh those different uh, aspects to come up with what we think is the best solution. What is the cost difference of, uh, underground to overhead? It, it varies, varies very, very widely. Um, in a rural environment, where we have very few customers um, and very small capacity requirements. Um, it could be maybe double uh, to go underground versus overhead. Sometimes it could be maybe one and a half times, a little bit closer to reality. So you see us investing in underground in those rural areas very often because one of the costs of underground is all the equipment that we have to add <clears throat> and the amount of landscape that takes up and the, the, the cost of that equipment. When you get into the more dense areas and the areas that have higher capacity requirements, uh, one of the problems with underground cable is, is it, it, doesn't, it retains heat. Uh, so when you have a lot of energy flowing through an underground cable, you have to put in much larger cable than you would otherwise in order to manage the heat so that you don't damage the insulation from the heat flowing through the cable <clears throat> that's generated from the energy flowing through the cable. Um, so when you get into those high capacity areas, the cost is more like three or four times the cost of overhead because we're having to deal with this. There's more equipment, the equipment is bigger and more expensive, and we've got this heat issue we've got to deal with, and the size of the conductor gets very large and underground. So that's... It's so interesting because I, I think, and you were right to point it out, Tony, like that question comes from a sincere place for most of our members because on the surface it seems simple. Trees and squirrels are what cause all the outages, so put the put the wire where the trees and squirrels can't get to it and poof, no problems. But there's so much complexity to these yeah. decisions when you start thinking about some of these other things. Yeah. Power is... An another big issue is a pole will last 50, 60, some of them mm -hmm. 70 years. What's the average lifespan of underground? Is probably 20, 25? Yeah, it varies. But the, the history shows that 30 to 40 years is generally the maximum lifetime of primary underground cable. Uh, at medium voltage, the distribution voltage we operate, you know, we're, we're putting 7,000 volts uh, plus through these, through these cables underground. And electricity has a way of trying to break down insulation. The higher the voltage is, the more energy that it has to try and break down that rubber or plastic insulation around it. It's very different than the like the communications cables that phone or cable TV companies would put in the ground where they're running very low level voltage, you know, less than 50 volts um, <clears throat> through that wire. It doesn't have the continual detrimental impact of the energy in the cable. Um, so the energy is always trying to get out of the cable and it's always looking for a way to get out. It's trying to get to ground. That's, that's what potential does. Just like lightning in the sky wants to get to ground and, and, and do great damage. Well, that energy that's in the cable wants to do the same thing. It wants to get out of the cable and it's always, it's always trying to find a path out. And as that, that cable ages, it's continually getting beat up on by the energy inside trying to find a way out. So that very different uh, scenario than what we have up in the air where the air is basically the insulator. 
So we're, we're almost out of time, but I have one, one last quick question. What is the biggest threat to the electric grid? That's, uh, that's a good question. I'd like to think it's squirrels and that there's a conspiracy, but maybe there's not. Like that maybe they get together. Yeah, um, I think the the, the biggest uh, the biggest threat to the grid is 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 a cascading event. You know, like we've seen before with the big blackouts. And what causes that cascading event? And a cascading event is where one particular thing happens: a transmission line trips offline, or a generator trips offline, and it causes the 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 energy change in the grid to be so great that it starts to cause other things to trip offline too. And then that causes it to be bigger and the thing snowballs and it's like a snowball rolling down the hill. It just starts knocking stuff out all over the place. And there's so many things that have been put into place to try and reduce the risk of these cascading events. Um, the likelihood of one occurring today is, is by, in many ways much less than it's ever been before because of all the protections put in place. At the same time, a lot of the infrastructure is kind of running at, at peak capacity. So there's, there's an increased risk of, of something triggering something than there would have been in the past, but the, there's more protections in place to prevent it from going too far. So um, that's the biggest risk, um, but there's a ton of things that are going on to mitigate that. And that, that, that event could come from a tree, it could come from an animal, it could come from equipment failure, it could come from potentially even from a cybersecurity risk. So there's lots of, lots of potentials out there, but the risk is that something cascades. So many risks on your radar, and so you're trying to build a system that helps mitigate against it. Yep. So uh, I think that's about it, unless you have any other questions, Tony? No, I do not. I think awesome. we've, we've covered a lot. Favorite part of the day? Fun fact? Tony, kick us off. Well, I actually have two. The, the first one is quick. Uh, that's not legal. Well, I know, but <laughs> manager's prerogative. Because <laughs> the first one's my favorite. My, I moved here in March of 2003. The first person I hired was Frank Sepker in May of 2003. He's been working for the members, making me look good for almost 14 years now. So that's my favorite fun fact. But it, my educational fun fact is, in, again, in the political season, Gerald R. Ford, former president from Michigan, graduated from the University of Michigan. You would think that he would support electric co-ops. But from 1949 to 1973, when he was in Congress, Ford cast 71 votes on rural electrification issues. He only supported the co-op position 11 times. Now you ask, why is that? Back then, just like today, a lot of the politics was controlled by the big investor-owned utilities, Consumers Energy, DTE, and we still have that problem today. So when we're out advocating for our political positions, we've always had to do that because we're the small guys on the block. We have to try harder. So that's just an example of why co-ops have to lobby 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and today. And why our members need to, to support us and, and tell their legislators these things matter to them as well. Sure. Frank, so fun, fun fact, fact here, <clears throat> Cherryline has about 31 employees that are involved with field operations, you know, here out of our main office in Gron. Um, but that's not, that's not everybody. Uh, we've got contractors that we work with. Uh, and we brought, there's about 10 different contractors that we work with on a regular basis here within the, within the Cherryland area. Nine of those 10 contractors are local entities. Um, so really proud of that support that we're keeping all this investment tied in here locally with our, with our local uh, contractors, everyone from uh, line construction contractors to uh, earthwork excavating contractors, things of that nature. But every time we move on these lines, there's, there's, there's dirt that has to move, there's yards that have to be repaired, things of that nature. So we're really tied into that local community. 
And since Frank's not going to say this for himself, I'll say it for him. One of the things that I think is amazing about what you do, Frank, is how effective you are with, quite frankly, not that many people. Our people work really hard, and you're helping to, to direct their human resources in the right places to, to do a lot with very few people, which is awesome and yeah. benefits our members. Yeah. yeah, meters per employee is something we talk about on a regular basis around here. Cherryland is either one or two in the nation in meters per employee. We have about 630-some meters per employee. The national average is closer to three, 400. That's awesome. So I'm going to take it a little different direction for my fun fact. Some of you may not know, but October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Every, every, so everything has a month. But anyway, last spring, an employee at the Lansing Board of Water and Light opened an email with a malicious attachment that spread through the entire organization. It was ransomware. And it's essentially like a digital hostage crisis for the Lansing Board of Water and Light. It's the first publicly known time a U.S. utility has been hit with ransomware. And I just read today that the final bill for remediation for that was $2 million dollars through the Lansing Board of Water and Light that has to be made up somewhere amongst ratepayers and or insurance companies. Um, so in honor of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, I want to give a shout out to our IT guy here at Cherryland, Steve Weaver. He works really hard to do everything he can to help keep us safe and most importantly to help educate our employees not to click on suspicious attachments um, and to constantly keep us up to date. It is a constant battle and some of the things we've talked about today as we increasingly computerize our grid, there's a lot at stake in these things. So shout out to Steve and um, whether it's squirrels or cyber attacks or whatever, it doesn't matter who's out to get us. We've got good people here at Cherryland helping to helping to protect us and mitigate those risks. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.